All right. How you guys doing? Yeah, come on. So uh, first off, before we get started, I want to say a big thank you to Andres back there. He comes in. I know him and Travis come back and run the slides all the time. And so a big thank you to those guys. And the East Asia team gets back tomorrow. Um, so yeah, we're, we're excited for the stories that they have. I know that guys been doing amazing things through those students. And so we're excited to hear about that. And if you guys didn't know, Andres was kind of a forerunner to them, to a lot of those students being able to go as he went uh, and kind of paved the way and recruited students to go as well. So a uh, big thank you to the, to the people in the back running the slides and music. And uh, yeah, speaking of summer missions, I went on my first summer mission the week, I guess the, the summer after my freshman year. And it was kind of this pseudo summer mission where I interned with this software company and then worked uh, in this neighborhood. But it was really great. But you know, I quickly found out though that I was not really a gifted software developer, coder, anything <laughs> like that, right? And uh, since the, the company was running out of a, the attic of a church and it was partnered with Alamo Stone, um, I ended up doing just a lot of like tasks for Alamo Stone throughout. Like I would make the slides and the worship slides and do all kinds of stuff and go across town and get couches. It was kind of a weird uh, summer mission, summer kind of internship job, but it was great. Um, and in between things, what I would do is I would watch movies with my boss. And so one of the movies that we watched that I really enjoyed was No Country for Old Men. How many of you guys have seen that? Yeah, some of you guys? Okay. Well, I'll give you guys the premise for it. There's this rancher, and he stumbles upon this drug deal gone wrong out in the middle of, like, the desert. And a bunch of bodies out there and, a, and like, $2 million in cash. So instead of turning the cash over to the authorities, he decides to take the cash. Well, the cartel finds out about it, and they send after him a Sicario, which is basically just kind of a hitman um, for the cartel, right? And so the Sicario is chasing after him. And this Sicario goes by the name of Anton Chigurh, and he is a bad man in the movies, right? Like, you know how every great movie has to have, like, a great villain? Or every great show has to have a great villain? Like, you've got Darth Vader in Star Wars, right? What would Star Wars be without Darth Vader, right? Or Heath Ledger's Joker, right? They kind of made that Batman series. Also, you've got Plankton and SpongeBob, right? Another great villain, kind of makes the show. And so Anton from Noel Country is kind of one of the great villains of film, in my opinion. And uh, he just kind of coldly goes about just killing anybody that comes across his path. Like he's kind of an equal opportunity murderer. Just anybody that comes across him uh, gets murdered. And, uh, you know, he, uh, he comes across this guy, um, this guy, and sometimes he gives people a chance. They get a chance by flipping a coin, and they got to call it right. And we see this film, um, you see this, this, I'm going to show you guys a little clip where he kind of interacts with this guy. And I just want y'all to kind of take in the interaction, let's discuss it um, after it's done. All right, so one of the great scenes of, of film, I feel like, you know, it's kind of drawn out, but there's that scene where he puts the wrapper on and it's just kind of like the tension is coming out, you know, in the process. And so, um, yeah, I just think that's probably not the guy that you want to know where you live and also to know what time you go to bed and whether, you probably don't want him coming back at night, you know, to your house, right? Um, so do you guys think he understood the gravity of the decision that he was making? Do you think he knew he was about to die? No, like he, he knew something was wrong, right? He knew there was something up, right? But he probably didn't understand that, the gravity of that decision. And uh, Anton kind of hints that maybe he hasn't understood, like, the gravity of his decisions up until that point, you know? Um, 
and talks about how he's been putting it up his whole life, you know, and the guy didn't even know it. So either way, though, this guy had to make a decision, right? He was called to a decision. And I've had a lot of hard decisions in my life. Um, and, and not necessarily just with negative consequences, but just decisions that were challenging for me. And so the following summer, I went on another summer mission. I came back uh, to the same summer mission here in San Antonio. And I was wrestling with whether or not to date this girl that was on the same project as me. And I was, you know, I'd, I'd come out of an unhealthy relationship or had a history of unhealthy relationships. So I was kind of wondering if I could even be in a healthy relationship. And I was walking around the Starbucks with a couple of my mentors. And they told me, hey, James, you just got to you just got to call it. You got to make a decision and own the consequences for it and uh, leave space for the grace of God in those in those results. And so I did. I called it. And uh, sure enough, I wanted up. We wanted up dating and then we got married. So that's my wife over here. And now we have three kids. And so sometimes calling it works out really well. Right. <laughs> sometimes it does. Now, my wife could probably tell you not all the decisions that I made. Uh, have turned out to be good decisions, but um, the reality is in life is that no decision is still a decision, it's just a no decision, right? Like no decision in life is still a decision. Um, and so I want you guys to think about what, what has been a, a challenging decision that you've had to make before? What is a challenging decision you've had to make before and one that you know kind of had legitimate impact on your life direction? Maybe you didn't know it at the time, or maybe you did. You're like, hey, this is going to be really uh, this is going to be a really impactful decision. So talk to the person next to you real quick. We're going to take just two minutes real quickly. And I want you all to talk about a hard decision uh, that you had to make. So if you're kind of married and you want to talk to somebody else, feel free to talk across the aisle as well or talk to your spouse. Yeah, I think there's that sense that when we make hard decisions, we, you know, in economics, they talk about opportunity costs. Like we're kind of giving up something and what are we giving up? And we never really, like we, a lot of times when we make a decision, we don't know what the next you know, what the path is going to hold. We're kind of hoping in something or someone um, to walk down that, walk us down that path successfully, right? Nobody goes to college and kind of has a mindset of like, this is exactly what college is going to be like, or into high school, and this is exactly what high school is going to be like. Um, but we still have to make a decision, right? Um, and so what's interesting is the Bible kind of has this, this moment we're going to talk about today where Jesus poses a question, and what he's doing in posing a question is he's posing a decision to his disciples. And it's kind of a decision that, he probed, that he's going to probe first. To, he's going to probe them uh, by asking them a first question, kind of a setup question. He's going to follow through with a question that's kind of personal. And I want us to, to take some time to really dig that up today and look at that. And that's in Matthew 16, 13 through 20. So if you turn there with me. I'm going to pray for us real quick. Father, as we open your word today, we pray that you would speak to our hearts and to our minds, to our souls, God, that you would minister to us um, in a new way, and you would challenge us uh, to not walk out of here um, with the same mind, God, but with a mind that's choosing to follow you and um, walking with you, God. We thank you for the grace that's been given to us in Christ Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. So it says this, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, Some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, 
but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. So this book, Matthew, is the account of Matthew. Uh, it just means the Gospel of Matthew, the, the kind of the message of Matthew about the life of Jesus. And Matthew is a Jew, and he's writing to the Jews, and he's writing about a Jew, and that Jew is Jesus. So he's a Jew writing to Jews about a Jew. And it's rich with Judaic symbolism and prophetic fulfillments. So Matthew has got all these wonderful things that you can dig up if you were to, if you were to be kind of a, a Jewish scholar or a Hebrew scholar. And what's amazing is, as Matthew's writing this, there's things that we would miss as just kind of Western readers, but as a Jew, you would go, oh my gosh, I know exactly what he's talking about right here. There is something far deeper than what I, as a Western reader, can comprehend, right? And now, what's amazing about the Bible is, as a Western reader, I can read it and still glean the essential truths that are needed for me to walk with Jesus, right? Like, I don't have to be a first century Jew to understand the Bible and to comprehend uh, its salvific contents to me, right? So, where we pick up in Matthew 16, Matthew has been documenting the consistent proof of the divinity of Jesus, of the divine nature of Jesus, and that he is, in fact, the Messiah. And Jesus continues to come confront the Jewish kind of... Uh, the Jewish kind of conservatives of his day, and he continues to confront them, and they continue to kind of reject him. And he warns his Pharisees, he warns his disciples right after them, right after this kind of conversation in chapter 16, to beware the leaven of the Pharisees. Now, if you do a little study on the leaven of the Pharisees, leaven is yeast, and it's what causes you know your bread to begin to kind of ferment and to grow and to kind of form gas bubbles in it, it makes your bread nice and fluffy when the, when the yeast begins to react uh, with the sugars in your dough. And so he talks about this yeast that kind of gets into your life, and it's the leaven, this yeast of the Pharisees that gets into your life and corrupts your life. And so what is the yeast of the Pharisees? Well, the Bible says the yeast of the Pharisees is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy, which is, in a sense, the idea that somehow I can be justified before God because I am good enough or because I am righteous enough or that I can become good enough or I can become righteous enough. And so Jesus warns them to beware the leaven of the Pharisees and then he pulls them aside because here's what's about to happen. If you've studied the book of Matthew, Jesus in the first 16 chapters is kind of setting up the case for him being the Messiah and then after this he is going to turn to Jerusalem where he is going to meet the crucifixion. So there's this turning point that's about to happen right here in Matthew. And Jesus is about to experience some dark days ahead of him. right? And you know who's going with him? The disciples. There's hard days ahead of them. The disciples being the people that were following Jesus at the time. The 12 of them. And he pulls them aside for a little conversation. This little intimate conversation. And he says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, just for a second, it's important to know that Jesus is referring to himself as the Son of Man. And it's one of his favorite titles. It's one of his favorite titles. And we're going to come back to this. But I kind of want you to think about yourself. Imagine you're kind of sitting around a campfire with Jesus and all your buddies. And he says to you, who do people say that I am? 
Who do people say that I am? Who does culture say that I am? What does the media say? Who does the, who does the media say that I am? Who does my friend group say that I am? And who does my family say that I am? Think about it. What are some of the words that kind of come to the, the top of your mind? You don't have to give me the, the kind of the PC church answer. You know, Jesus, Bible, Holy Spirit. What are some of the words that, that you know, when you think about Jesus, who, does, who do people say that Jesus is today? The man upstairs. The man upstairs? Yeah, that's a good one. Sounds like a country song. One of many. One of many, yeah. A benign prophet. A benign prophet. Intolerant person. Intolerant person, okay. What about you, Ramsey? You look like you got something to pick it up. What I hear the most is good teacher. Good teacher, yeah. Yeah, good teacher. Nice guy. Nice guy, right? Good spiritual leader, right? Definitely. So, this is what the disciples say, right? The disciples say, that some say that you are John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Right? Like they had this understanding that there was something uniquely special about Jesus. And they kind of answered with these famous men uh, throughout the history of Israel that they thought that Jesus could be. But we know John the Baptist had been killed before this in the book of Matthew. He's already been beheaded and killed. So they're, they're, they're kind of saying, like, maybe Jesus is some resurrected prophet and it's like actually you know you're kind of closer you start talking about resurrection and Jesus they're like kind of getting a little bit close to the right answer and still the wrong answer right um, it's kind of neat I think if you go if you go and study these people too there's kind of some significance to that as well but it's important to know that they answer with these people and it's not the correct answer Jesus wasn't those people and so Jesus kind of takes this question and he says but what about you he says who do you say that I am. Imagine that, right? You're kind of having this discussion on culture, media, politics, right? And then Jesus kind of goes, but what do, you, what do you say? Who do you say that I am? And they've spent a couple of years with Jesus by this point. And he's asking them to call it. He's asking them to make a decision. Who do you say that I am? What a question, too. Imagine... This is the same question that Jesus is asking each one of us. Who do you say that I am? So many people, kind of even, even the people in Jesus' day, had come to the conclusion that he was a good man, or that he was a good spiritual leader or some prophet. What's important to consider, though, in light of our, our response, their response, is we say, who is Jesus? And we need, to, we need to look further into who does Jesus claim to be. Who do we say that Jesus is? Do we say that Jesus is the person that he claims to be? So he's already called himself in this passage, the Son of Man. And Jewish readers are going to read the Son of Man, just like I was talking about, and they're going to be like, oh, I know that. I know exactly what Jesus is talking about right here. It's not a claim to his humanity. It's actually a claim to his divinity. So in Daniel 7, 13 through 14, if y'all want to turn there, It says this, it says, I was watching in the night visions, and I kind of think of this as like, I was watching Netflix at night, no, all right. And behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, 
nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. So 600 years before Matthew is being this kind of these events are taking place in Matthew, we have this kind of prophecy written uh, by Daniel. And this prophecy is about one called the Son of Man. The Son of Man who is approaching God the Father. And it says that God gave him glory. God gave him glory. And one thing that we know from the Bible, Isaiah 42, 8, and multiple places throughout Scripture, it says that God doesn't do one thing and it's share his glory with any man. So when Jesus comes in and claims to be the Son of Man, he's claiming to be God. He's claiming to be God. But not only that, he's affirming that he is the Messiah. Now the word Messiah simply kind of means a, a savior or one who had come to kind of help the Jews. And the Jews are looking for this Messiah who's going to overturn the Roman reign and their oppression. But Jesus' mind is on something far greater. It's overturning the reign of sin and death in our, in, that's, that's in every man's life. And so when Peter comes out, and Peter's kind of the rambunctious kid in the class. You know, he speaks out without raising his hand. We got teachers in here, right? You know, you know that kid, right? And Peter's just kind of out there. Peter comes out, and he says, who do they say that? And Peter's just like, you're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus affirms that to be right. You say, well, James, how? Jesus wasn't like, oh, snap, Peter. Like, I think, you know, yeah, you know what? Bet. That's right. I am the son of God. Right? No, he doesn't say that. Right? He says, you're... You have spoken right, Peter. He's affirming, I am the Messiah. I am the Son of God. That's me, right? And he says that this has been revealed only by the power of God. That it is God who showed them that, right? So let's think about this. Is there other passages in the Bible where Jesus is claiming to be God? And you know what? There's a lot of them. And I'm going to give you guys just three, three of them to look at. And so I'm going to ask for a couple of readers, three readers, to read these passages out loud to us. So can I get somebody to read John 5.15? Go ahead. Yeah, that sounds great. Thanks, Juan. All right, Mark 14, 61 through 62. Awesome. And then let's say Matthew 27, 41 through 43. And I want you to think about this. The first two. Jesus claims to, or the first three. Jesus claims to be God. Think about how they respond. Think about how first century Jews respond. Jesus is going to say, I am God. And he's not going to say it in kind of the English 21st century way. Where we were all like, all of a sudden we were reading in scripture and there's Aramaic. And, and, and then all of a sudden we see um, Jesus saying English, I am God. No, he's going to say it in a way that speaks into the culture and speaks into the people and the history of the time so that they know exactly what he is saying. So let's look at those three verses real quick. Yeah. Sorry, 5 through 18. 15 through 18. No, you're good. Seeking all the more to kill him, because he had not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Awesome. 
Mark 14, 61 through 62. But Jesus was silent and made no reply. Then the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated in the place of power at God's right hand and coming on the clouds of heaven. Awesome. Right there, first two verses. First off, we have Jesus who kind of breaks the Sabbath is the kind of what the Pharisees are saying because he heals somebody, he helps somebody. And he says that my father has been working until now. His father is a heavenly father. Now, today's day and age, you know, you call daddy, whoever you want to call daddy, right? But this is not a this is not it in first century. You do not claim that God is your father without having some divine nature to yourself, right? Like that's exactly what Jesus is doing. And how do they respond? They know what he's saying. It says that they sought to kill him because he was making himself equal with God. And then you see it again where they ask him that the priest actually puts, the high priest puts Jesus under oath and they, he asks him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? And he says, I am, which is kind of like a double entendre because in the Old Testament, the way that God described himself was, I am. But Jesus responds to the question affirmatively, also while naming himself equal to God. And what, is it, and what does he use there? Do you, do you see the kind of verse he goes back to? And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand. Bam! There it is again. Daniel 7, right? All right, let's look at Matthew 27, uh, 41 through 43. And let's hear what the, the chief priest heard Jesus say. Yeah. Wait, who's, who's reading that one? You were? Yeah. Matthew 27, 41 through 43. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He is saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross, and we shall believe in him. He trusts in God. Let him, let him deliver him now, if he takes pleasure in him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Awesome. So they're kind of, they're kind of mocking Jesus. And you know when you, like when you say something and then like your brother says something to your mom and then he's like, he said that. And then your mom's like, did you say that? And you're like, I did say that. And it's kind of generally like, kind of like that's true, right? Like you can kind of, like that's true. Well, here Jesus' enemies are saying, he said he's the son of God. Jesus is like, I, here we have it earlier. I said I was the son of God. It's understood that Jesus is claiming divinity. And so as we jump back to the Matthew 16 verse, why do you think Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? You think he's just kind of shooting the breeze with them, or there's kind of a purpose to what Jesus is doing? As in everything that he does in life, he's got this kind of unique purpose to what he's doing? Well, we know that Jesus is ahead, ahead of him is dark days. And he's, he's asking them, he's going directly to the heart, who do you say that I am? Because the storms of life are guaranteed for you. People will die. Siblings will die. You will die. Your parents will die. Right? That's, that's inevitable. You will face hard decisions in hard circumstances. You can't get away from that. There's no wealth and prosperity message that can help you escape suffering in this life. In America, I think we believe that we can, but we can't. We can't. And I think you get to an age where you realize, I was kind of naive about that. You know, I was kind of naive. But the reality is that it, it's real, and Jesus is wanting them to know, who do you say that I am? in these dark seasons because it's him that will be an anchor for them in those storms it is him that will carry them through those storms that will walk through those storms with them 
And as we look at this, Matthew, look at, let's look at the verses that follow up our, our verses right here in Matthew 16, 21 through 27. It says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, the turning point, right? He's going to the cross and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. And then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man that if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Man, okay, so Jesus, you know, here you got Peter making the right answer, revealed from God, immediate, like, passage next, called Satan by Jesus. And I think, if anything, that just gives me, like, hope, because I'm often making good decisions followed up right by a bad decision, followed up by a good decision, followed up by a bad decision, right? And yet Peter still is called um, the rock that Jesus will build his church upon, right? Or it's debated. That's debated. We can go to a different sermon on that another time. So... (laughs) The question I kind of want to jump back to you is, is who do people say that I am? Who do you say that Jesus is? It's a question that we all have to ask, and Jesus is kind of laying it out right here, that this is a big decision, that there is seriousness to this decision. You have to call it. You got to, right? And Jesus is claiming to be God. And if he's claiming to be God, we can only have two responses to that, right? It's either true or it's false. It's true or it's false. Now, if it's false, we can kind of assume two different options. One is that he knew it was false. Jesus knew it was false. And this would mean that he was knowingly lying to people and leading them astray. I don't think you would say that he is a good teacher or good spiritual leader if that's the ministry that he kind of bases his life off of, right? You would, you would probably call him wicked and you would call him a fool because he was willing to die for it. He was willing to die for it. The other thing was, was that he did not know that he was making a false statement. He was actively walking around claiming to be God, to be able to forgive people their sin and restore them to God. Now this would make him crazy. It would make him a lunatic. And you cannot claim the things that Jesus said and be just a good teacher. I think it's important for us to remember that. Right? You can't just be a good person or a good teacher and claim the things that Jesus said. But as psychologists have looked over the New Testament, they don't see any evidence that Jesus was mentally unstable. He actually appears to be completely stable with the way he interacts. So if we conclude that what Jesus said is true, that he is God, we kind of have to take him seriously. He's not just kind of a good advisor, and the things that he says aren't just good advice. They're not just good suggestions, right? These are things that will be an anchor for us. There'll be hope for us in, in the storms of life. Those inevitable brushes that we have with the brokenness of life. And so in life, there are certain things that you have to make a decision about. And that a no decision is a no decision. Right? That no, you not making a decision is just a decision to know. Right? So for a person here that's wondering whether or not to trust Jesus for who he says he is, this Messiah, this, sal- this, sal- this salvation of your soul and of your life, the Son of God, 
offered for the forgiveness of sin to restore you to him. I just want you to be honest with yourself. Be honest with yourself. You have to call it. You have to determine. Where do you think right now, at this moment, who do you say that Jesus is? And I think if we're Christians in here, we have to continue to call it. We never move on from this question. I don't think that God ever moves on and says, Donnie, first question, check, you got it right. Now you never have to wonder about who, who, who am I. But that's not true. He constantly comes back to us and says, Wes, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? I think we have to wrestle with that. And one of the ways we can wrestle with that is, who does my life say that Jesus is? When I look at my life, who does it say that Jesus is? When I look at my words, who does it say that Jesus is? Does it say that he is the son of the living God? That he has saved me from all my sins and all my suffering? And that he's given me new life and life abundantly? If I'm honest with you guys, I would say that many times my life doesn't say that. Right? I think it's, it's the grace of God that reminds me that it was he who revealed the truth of, truth of Jesus to me. It is God himself who revealed it to me. And that he is my Lord and my Savior. It wasn't flesh and blood. It's not human effort. It's not me just trying to be a good person. But it is God who saves me. And it is God who keeps me. He who is faithful to complete the good work of salvation. He is faithful to complete the good work of salvation that he has begun in me. It is him. And I am free to be with him as he refines me, knowing that his righteousness will always be enough. Because so subtly does that leaven of hypocrisy and self-righteousness slip into our beliefs. It breeds into comparison. We look around the room and compare our righteousness to other people. And we kind of begin to judge ourselves based on this basis of pride. We begin to trust ourselves, our good works, and the, or the opposite occurs, and we think that we are too far gone. That we have done too much to ever be accepted by God. To ever return to the fold. And these aren't true. God intersects us here in the person of Jesus. Through all the Old Testament, God is making himself known to our sinful and rebellious people. He's wanting to be in relationship with it, and we still miss it. But we see here that God responds. He offers us to the faith to engage in relationship with, with him. It is not something that we have to kind of white-knuckle our way through. Jesus states that whoever seeks to save his life, whoever wants to work to save his life, what will happen? He'll lose it. He'll lose it. You can't save your life. You can't. If you seek to save your life, you will lose it. But it's in letting go of our efforts to make right to be made right in our efforts. It's letting go of the shame that says that we are not worthy. And to acknowledge us, acknowledge Jesus for who he says he is, that he is God and I am not. That frees us up. This recognition allows us to be loved by God. It allows us to experience intimacy with God, to be forgiven by him, and that he would come in and transform our hearts and our minds. Because God offers this relationship to us on what basis? Because he loves us. For God so loved the world. It is God's love that drives him to this. It is God's love 
that drives Jesus while he's on earth to the cross to die and to reconcile us to God. It is God's love. And Romans 2 says that it is God's kindness, it is his goodness that draws us to repentance and that we can be in relationship with him and that he can transform our hearts and our minds from the inside out. The reality is, though, is that you have to call him. We have to call it every day for a Christian. We continue to call it. And to call it means to place our trust in Jesus, to let go of our own efforts, and to accept God's love and kindness into our lives. I'm going to pray, with, pray for us. Father, I just I ask that you would help us to continue to see you as worthy, that we would continue to surrender our lives at your feet. For the people in the room that are still questioning these things, God, I, just, I ask that you would make it sure to them ask that you would make it sure to them and that you would allow them to experience the love that comes from knowing you, God. We thank you for your word, this truth. We ask that you would go with us this week as well. It's in your name we pray. Amen. That's all I have for you guys.